Revelation chapter 5, I'd like to read the entirety of Revelation 5 for us this morning. Let's give our attention then to the reading of God's word. This is where it gets good. John says, then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne, a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep. Loudly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who is seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. And from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. You get a nosebleed from passages like that, but grass withers and flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. In the weeks just prior to his death in a Roman Colosseum by being mauled by lions, Ignatius of Antioch wrote this in a letter. He said, may I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. I pray that they would be found eager to rush at me, and I will also entice them to devour me speedily and not deal with me as some whom out of fear have not touched. If they are unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. Pardon me. I know what is to my benefit. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let no one of things invisible or visible prevent me from attaining to Jesus Christ. Let fire and the cross, let wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocation of bones, let cutting off of limbs, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all of the evil torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me attain to Jesus Christ. Wow. (laughs) 
You know, most preachers, I think, at least a lot of the preachers that I feel like I encountered in my time, would introduce passages and stories like that letter for inspirational purposes. Now there, they might say, was a real saint of God. Don't you wish you were that kind of person? And we'd all go home trying to motivate ourselves to be better people or something like that. But I want to ask a more scientific question of you this morning, and that is, how do you, as a 21st century person, understand this portion of the letter? We assume historically that it's got a measure of accuracy, that there really was a person who really penned those words, who really faced the lions and really died that horrific death. Where do you put that in your mind? I think there's actually options that we have. You might say to yourself, well, Les, you know, there's just, there's people that are born with sort of a, they got a religious gene in them, you know? They're just religious like that. They, they're bold, they're a little bit crazy, you wonder if they're weird, but that's just kind of what they do. You might believe that. You might be in a place where you say, well, Les, there clearly was something wrong. No one, no one talks like that about their own deaths. He, he was experiencing a moment of psychological instability in the face of his own death. You might also think to yourself, well, Les, you know, this is very primitive. I mean, this was, this was a thousand and a half years ago that this happened. Like, people back then were just primitive. They, they talked that way back in those days. But what I want to challenge you this morning to do is just, just for a moment to set aside our historical condescension for people who said things like this and take the man at his word. In other words, did you hear what he said in the middle portion there? That is in the middle he said, pardon me. He has to say pardon because what he's describing is, is, is grisly. Pardon me, but I know what is to my benefit. You see what he's doing? He said, I have simply waited in the balance. I have looked at what it means to live my life over and against what I have found in Jesus. And the latter is more valuable to me than the former. In other words, he is making, an, he's making a statement that is based on pure rationality. That I've simply set them in the balances. And attaining Christ is better than whatever I might gain by avoiding the lion's. And my execution. And again, you might walk away from this this morning saying, wow, I don't, I don't think I would do that. Then can I at least this morning appeal to your sense of curiosity? If you're just joining us, we talked last week about what John sees when he finally breaks through what is probably a very thin layer of reality all around us to the heavenly world that is among us but just beyond our ability to see, it, to see it. And on the other side, what John has seen is a great and glorious stage of the God of the universe that is completely occupied by the activity of worship. But what I said to you as we wrapped up last week was what if there is something on the other side of the veil that was worthy and worth your worship? And so now we find out exactly what it is that's worthy of our worship. Because it's the only thing that the people of heaven keep talking about. 
D.A. Carson, Don Carson, to whom I'm greatly indebted for a lot of the material in this uh, sermon this morning, was the one who said that Roman, Revelation chapter 4 is the setting for what Revelation 5 is the drama. That is chapter 4 is the background, the, the, the props, the scenery as it were. But in chapter 5, we come to what the story is all about. And in many ways, the center of everything. Because what we find is the reason why Ignatius would say, fine, send me to the lions, but just give me Christ. And if you don't feel that way this morning, and I don't feel that way this morning, then can you at least pique your curiosity and say, maybe, maybe, I just missed something. And in Revelation 5, I think we see it in three ways. We're going to find, first of all, that Jesus is the answer to history. Jesus solves the problem of history. Number two, Jesus solves the problem of redemption. And finally, he solves the problem of joy. History, redemption, and joy. Let's look at this. First of all, Jesus solves the problem of history. You may not have realized there was a problem with history, but John's going to show it to you by a scroll. When John begins to look up towards the throne, suddenly there's a a scroll in the midst of it. It's a unique scroll. We find that it's written on both sides. We know from ancient Near Eastern cultures that one of the few documents of scrolls that was written on both sides was a legal document. And the reason why was very simple. A legal document was a document that required all of the facts of the case to be kept in one place. It was weird to write on, 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 a, on a scroll of both sides. Scrolls were typically made out of a sort of pieces of, of pulverized papyri that would be lined up in a stretch and a certain adhesive glue would be spread across the top. Well, the top side where the glue was was smooth and you could write on it very easily but the back side was bumpy. And therefore, you rarely saw something that was written on both sides except for legal documents. And so I think D.A. Carson is right that what you have in this scroll is something that is all that needs to be said about a matter. It's the entirety of the thing. And of course, when that scroll was rolled up, blobs of hot wax were placed across the, the flap, as it were, to seal the whole thing. And then it was typically sort of uh, mashed on by a signet ring to show that it had the authority to it. The more seals you had, the more important you were. Well, this scroll had seven. That's an important word, which we'll talk about more next week. But the number seven was a number of, of perfection. And so we find that this scroll was sealed by the most perfect of kings. God's scroll was one of ultimate importance. And so an angel then steps forward and asks what at first glance might be a very strange question. Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? Who is worthy? And all of a sudden, John burst into tears. What is that about? Why is John crying over this seal? Well, I don't think he's crying just because he's like super, super curious as to what's on the inside and now he won't get to find out. No, John looks and realizes that what is contained in the scroll are the events of human history as they unfold and God's intention to make sense of those events of human history. In other words, what John sees is is God's determination to bring about justice in a world that is so wrong 
that he wonders if there's anyone that can make right all of the injustices that mankind has been doing to each other from since the beginning of time. And is there some way in which someone will put an end to that and make sense of it? And when all of a sudden John finds out that there's no one that's worthy, he begins to weep. And if you don't feel an affinity to that, then you may not be paying attention. About 10 years ago, almost exactly 10 years ago, college campus ministries were rocked by the news that a man named Sung Hoo Cho had gunned down 32 people and wounded 25 others on the campus of Virginia Tech. I was campus minister at Ole Miss at the time, and I can tell you that there was no one who felt safe on a college campus for about a week after that. It was a grisly experience. And as bad as the murderous spree was, the fact that the gunman had turned the gun on himself and taken his own life and never had to answer to the things that he did before a human court just made it all the more galling. Three or four days after the event happened, the, camp, the, the chaplain's ministry at Ole Miss decided to hold something of a, um, a, a, a memorial service for the people that had been lost at Virginia Tech. And we all gathered together to light candles or something for the victims. And there was a professor on campus who had actually been a professor at Virginia Tech who came back and was supposed to stay within the boundaries of speaking about his remembrances of Blacksburg and what a, what a lovely place it was and how kind the people were there. But at one point in the midst of his presentation, he decided to wax philosophical and say this. He said, look, I know there's a lot of us that want to try to make sense of this, but you know what? You can't. The man had a mental disease what are you going to do? And then moved on. And I at least had the presence of mind sitting on the back of the road and thought to myself, how dare you? Do you honestly think in your mind that you have settled this question? That you would be so glib in the face of the life of that many people to say, well, the man had a mental disease. What are you going to do? You going to say that to the parents that next Christmas after they had to live without their children for the first time? You're going to say that to the huddled masses of college students who are in their dorm rooms afraid to take a step outside the door for sheer fear? Look, here's the thing. It was a great, wide, evil tragedy that struck. But here's the deal that I found over the years. Do you realize that that kind of stuff happens every single day? Every single day is a fresh experience from someone around the world looking at the events of their life and saying, why? Why did this happen? Somewhere in the world today, there is a mother who has just lost a child. Somewhere there is someone who was just told that their child has cancer. Somewhere there is a a family member who received a cancer diagnosis. Somewhere there was a, a natural disaster or an act of God that killed all kinds of innocent people. The world is begging to know the answer to the question, why did this happen to me? And what happens as soon as pain sort of injects itself into the middle of a life is those ripples start moving outward, don't they? And suddenly we begin to doubt everything. Human history, we determine, means nothing 
if there is no one who can bring justice to the world and make right the wrongs that exist. Quite frankly, (laughs) the wrongs that I've inflicted on the people around me. That's the hard part. You look around the world around you and say, why is this happening? And suddenly you realize that you're complicit. That I'm just as much part of the problem. My friends, if there is a consistent base note of objection to religion in general, because you all want to know this, Les, why is it that these Why is it that our young people go off to college and and, and they leave the faith that they grew up believing? And you say to yourself, oh, tisk, tisk, these these colleges today. Well, it's not the colleges. What it is, is people's inability to look around at the evil around them and say, I don't see how this can exist and there still be a God. Number one objection. Objection. Number one objection, if they're walking away, it's because they can't solve the problem of history. But all of a sudden, we get the answer, do we not? An elder walks over and says to John, hey, don't worry. Don't worry, John. You want to know why? Because there's a lion. A lion, for any Old Testament person, was a symbol of power. It was a symbol of strength. When the lion showed up, you didn't really care about who else you were hearing from. Because when the lion roared, it was the only sound that mattered at that moment. And what the elder says is, do not worry. Because when the lion shows up, he's going to make it all right. That in the end of human history, he is worthy to open the scroll. The reason is, is because he is the one who's going to make it all right. It is a central tenet of Christian belief that no one gets away with anything. That there is a final judgment that is due to every single person where the books are opened and hearts are laid bare and the lion comes to set it all right. Don't weep, John, (laughs) because there's a lion. And there's a little part of me that thought to myself, well, if John thought that he had something to weep over, Because of the scroll, the idea that there's a lion might actually have caused him to weep a little bit more. Because if God is going to go and set all wrongs right, then he's going to have to measure that justice to me. But that brings us to the second problem, doesn't it? That Jesus comes and solves, though, the problem of redemption. See, because John looks to see this lion. Where? Where is this lion I'm at? See, but instead of seeing a lion... He sees a lamb with his throat cut. On his head he has ten horns. A horn, by the way, in the Old Testament is always a symbol for a king. A king is pictured pictured as a horn. And because there are seven of them, he is the perfect king. Not only that, he has seven eyes to show that he was in possession of the seven spirits. A picture of the perfect Holy Spirit of God. In other words, here we get a beautiful Trinitarian verse of the Lamb of God. And as soon as the lamb steps forward and all of heaven notices him, you know what they notices him? You know what they do? They explode in rejoicing. <laughs> they can't get over it. They literally, I mean, that's some of the best stuff in the Bible you can read, what we read this morning. It just is. In some of the most glorious praise because they see the lamb. And again, here's my question why? What was the magic? And right here, my friends, we come, as it were, into the Holy of Holies. 
How will the lamb right the wrongs? Well, we have to go, I think, to a helpful 20th century theologian, John R.W. Stott, for some help here. Stott, in his wonderful book, if you haven't read it, you ought to be ashamed of yourself, The Cross of Christ, says that Jesus and God in redemption had two problems. He did put problems in quote. When it comes to forgiveness, God has a problem. Because on the one hand, God says that he is absolutely just. And he cannot sweep sins under the carpet and continue to be the holy God that he is. But on the other hand, he also says that he takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. That is, he really is a God of love and loves his people and longs to be with them. In other words, in as much as there is law and justice in the center of the universe, there's also love at the center of the universe. But you're not thinking if you don't realize that those two don't go together very well if they're sinful people. Do you understand why? (laughs) Because if God all of a sudden decides that he's going to honor his justice over and against his love, nobody in this room has a chance. We're done. But if he decides to honor his love over and against his justice, then he ceases to be God. And none of the rights actually get wrong, get wrong, none of the wrongs get righted. But in one place, in one place, says the Christian, do law and love meet? And that's at the cross of Jesus. The wonderment of what happened on the cross is that you see God exercising every single ounce of his absolute justice by laying upon his son all of the wars, all of the injustice, all of the anger, all of the pain that you and I have been inflicting on each other for millennia. And he killed him for it. But in that exact same act, You have his enormous and unbelievable love. Why? Because he allowed Jesus to be a substitute for his people. Horatius Bonner, the old Scottish hymn hymn writer, said this. Law and love must be reconciled. The one cannot give way to the other. Both have to stand or else the pillars of the universe will be shaken. The world doesn't make sense until you deal with both. But if you hear the lion and you look towards him, you'll find that there's a lamb. He's lion and lamb. As lion, he comes to roar and execute justice. As lamb, he offers up himself as the only substitute for that. And for that reason, all of heaven rejoices over it. And what you have now come to is the key to understanding the Christian approach to pain and the Christian approach to suffering in the world. And there's a thousand ways to illustrate this, but I'll take a simple way. Let me ask you this question. Was the cross of Jesus the worst thing that ever happened in human history or the best thing? Now, for those of you who understand the gospel and have come to embrace it yourself, you realize that's a, that's a little bit of a tricky question, isn't it? On the one hand, you, you almost have to say it's the worst thing in human history. The Son of God is executed by his own people. That's horrific. But on the other hand, you know that it's the cross that bought your redemption, so it's the most wonderful thing in human history. How is that possible? Ah, now you got it. (laughs) Because of the cross. A Christian is absolutely unique in the way in which he deals with human suffering. 
Because on the one hand, he doesn't sort of blame you for it. That's moralism. Well, you know, there must have been something that you did wrong. That's Job's friends, by the way. Go back and read the book of Job and see how unhelpful religious friends can be to you while you're suffering. Well, I don't know. Maybe God is just trying to tell you something. But on the other hand, there's another group of people that's sort of from the Eastern religion tradition that'll make you deny that that pain is there. Well, you know what? Just come to church and we'll just, just don't think about it. And the things of earth will go strangely dim. No, no, they won't. They're worse. They hurt. I can't get away from them. I can't stop thinking about them. But only at the cross do you have a place where I can look at those things and say, yes, this hurts. It's terrible. I'm dying. But if what Jesus did on the cross is right, then my dying and my pain can never be ultimate pain and ultimate dying. Because that's what pain wants to do. Pain wants to move its way out into every nook and cranny of your life. It's not just that she left me. It's that I'm unlovable now. It's not just that my children are rebellious and running away from the faith. It's that I'm a failure as a parent. But Christians have learned this really weird language because you even have learned to talk about your past in that same way. You look back on those events and you're kind of like, you know what? That was the hardest thing in the world that ever happened to me. But you know what's crazy? It was the best thing that happened to me. That's completely unique. There is no other world religion that is able to deal with pain and suffering in that way. But come back next week because there's more to come on that topic. The cross solves the problem of redemption. And because it does, it solves the problem of joy. And I'll finish with this. Look, y'all, verses 11 through 14 are as good as it gets. (laughs) The most rapturous praise that you get in the entire Bible. C.S. Lewis was the one who said that you really haven't enjoyed something until you praise it. This is in his little book, uh, Reflections on the Psalms. It's wonderful. And what Lewis says is, when anything good happens to you, what's the first thing you want to do? The first thing you want to do is to get on the phone and call somebody about it. The, the greatest fear that a golfer has, I, I play some golf. People are, are you a golfer? I'm not a golfer. I play golf. What I do can never be determined. It can never become an identity for me. But is there any greater fear for a golfer when he decides to squeeze in nine after, after work, when he's playing by himself, for that to be the moment when he hits a hole in one? How terrible that would be. <laughs> Who's there to rejoice with? Lewis is saying that you're not really having fun until you get to praise the thing that you're enjoying. That the praising is part of the enjoyment. You know this. The citizens of heaven never get tired of talking about what they have found glorious any more than you get tired of talking about that big play that you were in in high school where you scored the winning touchdown. You drag that story out every family gathering you can get. Citizens of heaven do the same thing. What it means for us as Christians, though, is that for a Christian, there is joy at the center of the universe. That in the end, when when it all gets wrapped up, life will and does have a happy ending. It's a happy ending. Christians come, we're we're the lighthearted ones. (laughs) At least we're supposed to be. Samwise, Gamgee wakes up in the fields of Athelion thinking that he was dead after assisting his good friend Frodo throw the ring into the fires of Mount Doom. He thinks he's dead, 
But he wakes up suddenly in in perfect peace with blue skies. And the very first face that he sees, the movie's got it all wrong. They messed messed my favorite scene up. I will not forgive them. (laughs) But when Sam opens his eyes after his adventure in The Lord of the Rings coming to a close, the first thing he sees is Gandalf. You see, Sam got separated from Gandalf before Gandalf had his little mishap in the midway through the stories. And he looks up and he says this. He says, Gandalf, I thought you were dead. But then again, I thought I was dead. Man, will everything sad come untrue? And every Christian comes and has a worldview that says, yes. Yes, all of the sadnesses of life are ultimately going to be woven together into some kind of tapestry that in the end not only sings his praise, but that every one of us, when we see it, will call us to fall down and say, worthy, worthy is the lamb because he was slain. He's the one who made sense of all of the things that I cried out, even in my pain and in my loneliness in the middle of the night when there was no one watching. He's worthy. He's the one who led me through it. And my friends, when that grabs you, when that vision grabs you, it changes everything about your life. A number of years ago, I had a young lady insult me while we were having a conversation. She was a college student, um, <laughs> Ginger likes it when I tell the story, so I'll tell the story. She was a college student, and my wife and I had a somewhat younger friend of ours that we were trying to set up with a somewhat older friend of hers, but there was a, there was a bit of an age gap between our friend and her friend, and uh, for some of the college students, it kind of weirded them out that we were trying to set them up with someone who was eight years older than her friend. And at one point, my, the girl I was meeting with in a restaurant there, not Oxford, we were having a one-on-one she looked at me, she goes, what is the deal with you trying to set so-and-so up with so-and-so? That's creepy and weird. And I was like, y'all need to chill out. I know y'all think that that's all creepy, but after a certain age, once you get out of college, nobody cares how old you are. People get married all the time, who knows? And then she did this. She twisted her face into one of utter disgust. And she was like, but less. I mean, that would almost be like someone like me being with someone like you. You know, you flatter yourself as a minister sometimes. You're like, you know, I better be very careful in this conversation here because this young lady might get the right idea and she might have some affections for me. And then you you walk out of meetings like that and think, you know, if I was the last man on earth, (laughs) nothing would ever be compelling about this person. But here's the funny thing. When that happened, I don't think I thought about it for more than 20 minutes after it happened. But if that had happened to me like when I was in junior high... (laughs) Like you would have buried me in a shoebox, I would have been so devastated. But you know what? It hardly made a dent. You want to know why? Because Ginger was at home. And when I go back to there, there's such joy in the fact that she has bring, brought acceptance. It allowed me to look at that conversation. It's just a little speed bump. Yeah, you're right. I am old. In other words, if you get joy implanted enough in the center of your life, then the rest of the pain that we go through can come through like speed bumps because of the lamb, because he's worthy. Do you know him? Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, 
It becomes holy ground when we bow our heads. And in, in, in our mind's eye, in this, in this picture book that John left us, that you gave us, we, we walk through the door, as it were, and we can see. We see in our imagination the throne and the scroll. That scroll, Lord, is contained not just the crazy events of mass murders, but it, it contains that miscarriage that we had. It contains that, that, that deep rejection. It contains that firing, all of the scenes of my life where, I, where we cried out to you, why? And yet worthy are you because you were slain. You are lion and you are lamb and neither has given way to the other. And that only in the cross do we have the solution to human history and to redemption. And finally, that you have left us with joy. So Father, send us from this place with that spark, with that beauty, and make us different. Would you do that? We ask it in Jesus' name.